Hello, brothers and sisters. Can I get you please to open your Bibles or the Bibles on your phone uh, to 1 Samuel 13 and 14. 1 Samuel 13 and 14, uh, and let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray uh, that you will speak to us uh, by your Spirit. Uh, as we look at your Word together, please help me to preach rightly uh, in your Spirit's power, and may you be at work in each of our hearts. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In our announcements last week, I mentioned that many people find it helpful to study the preaching passage in small groups before hearing the sermon on Sunday. Our feedback from the groups actually is also helpful for the preacher. Uh, for I was told that in one of our groups last Thursday, a lady discovered a connection that I hadn't seen before between today's passage and Deuteronomy 20. Deuteronomy 20 contains a promise from God for Israel through Moses, which is contingent on Israel's obedience. Here's what it says. When you go out to war against your enemies and see horses and chariots and an army larger than your own, you shall not be afraid of them. For the Lord your God is with you, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And when you draw near to the battle, the priest shall come forward and speak to the people and say to them, Hear, O Israel, today you are drawing near for the battle against your enemies. Let your heart not be faint. Do not fear or panic or be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies, to give you the victory. Remembering that promise, we now fast forward over 400 years. Israel are in the land, Saul is their first king, and now he's establishing a standing army. He chooses 3,000 men of Israel, 2,000 are with him, 1,000 are with his son Jonathan. And Jonathan and his men defeat a Philistine garrison at a place called Geba. So Saul sends messages across the land to tell the Israelites that he has defeated a garrison of Philistines and to summon more people to join him at a place called Gilgal because he knows the Philistines are going to retaliate and his army is not enough. Well, the Philistines muster up 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and a number of troops that seem like the sand on the seashore. The Israelites are vastly outnumbered. The Philistine army is far superior. But God had said in Deuteronomy, if you see that, don't panic. God will give you the victory if you obey him. Well, the Philistines camp at a place called Mishmash, and the Israelites began to realize the odds. They get scared. Many of them run away and hide in caves and pits. Some even leave to the other side of Jordan. Uh, the, the troops that are remaining with Saul are quaking with fear. But Saul can't do anything because Samuel told him to wait for him to come and pray for God's favor and offer a burnt offering before going into the battle. For the king may be God's instrument, but God is the one who will save his people. And God wants to see his people and his king being faithful and obedient to him. Saul waits an anxious seven days, but no Samuel. Some of his troops are starting to leave. In fact, every day he waits, he's losing more of his army. And the longer he waits, the more men he will lose, the worse off he will be. And so eventually Saul takes decisive action. He goes ahead and offers the burnt offering himself. And as soon as he does that, Samuel turns up. And he says to Saul, what have you done? And Saul explains uh, from verse 11 uh, of 1 Samuel 13. He says, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and you did not come within the days appointed, and the Philistines had mustered at Mishmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. 
And Samuel says to him in verse 13, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. If, Samuel, if Saul had obeyed God, he would have had a permanent dynasty. But he panicked and disobeyed because he was losing his army. And he thought it was more important to have an army for a battle than to go into a battle for obeying God. And he thought that because he didn't really trust God's word. Which is more important for a battle? Having an army or trusting God's word and obeying him? Well, God shows us the answer in the next section. After this encounter, Samuel leaves Gilgal, and Saul and the 600 men who are left with him go to the area of Gibeah, which is not far from where the Philistines are camped at Mishmash. Jonathan is already in the area at Gibeah. And between Gibeah and Mishmash, there is a deep ravine where the Israelites can look across at the Philistines. And they can see the Philistines sending three raiding parties off in different directions to attack the, the villages of Israel, which are pretty defenseless, and there's nothing they can do about it. Remember how well equipped the Philistine army is? Well, the Israelites are really pathetic when it comes to weapons. Because the Philistines have the monopoly on the latest technology, iron. There are no blacksmiths in Israel. If they want to sharpen their axe or sickle, they have to go to a Philistine town and pay them to do it. And of course, the Philistines won't sell them weapons. They have an arms embargo on their enemy. So the only swords or spears the Israelites have are the ones with Saul and Jonathan. This is a pretty hopeless situation for Israel. We're now in chapter 14. Uh, and Jonathan invites his armor bearer secretly to come with him to the Philistine garrison on the other side. The plan is to go across a path with a couple of sharp columns of rock on either side and then, well, look carefully what Jonathan, why Jonathan wants to go in verse 6, where he says to his armor-bearer, verse 6 of chapter 14, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Notice he's not presumptuous. He's not saying God must work for him. But at the same time, he's full of faith. His father panicked and didn't trust God when the army began to dwindle. But Jonathan knows that it's not numbers that matter. If God wants to save, he can do so by many or by few. And the armor bearer says in verse 7, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And Jonathan comes up with a plan. It's good to have a plan, as long as you're trusting God, not your plan. He says in verse 8, Behold, we will cross over to the men, we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand. This shall be the sign to us. And that's what they do. And when the Philistines see them in the past below, they say, Look! The Hebrews are coming out of their holes where they've hidden themselves. And they taunt them 
Come up to us, we will show you something. And Jonathan says to his armor bearer, Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. And so they climb up on their hands and feet, and they face the Philistines. And amazingly, in verse 13, the Philistines fall before Jonathan, and the armor bearer kills them after him. Uh, and so they kill the 20 men who were stationed in that half-acre area. Great panic comes across the Philistine camp. People start fleeing. The garrison trembles. Even the raiders who had gone out from them for, for some reason panic. The earthquakes. All the Philistines are inexplicably thrown into mindless terror. This is obviously the Lord's doing, not the simple consequences of the action of two men. For as Jonathan said, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Back at the Israelite camp, Saul's watchmen report what they see. Uh, Saul's people check out who is missing, and they discover that it's Jonathan and the armor bearer. Saul calls for the ark, presumably to seek guidance, but as the tumult in the Philistine camp gets worse and worse, he tells the priest to stop the process, and he and his men go straight into battle. The Philistines, in their confusion, are already killing each other with swords, in verse 20. The Israelite traitors who had been on the Philistine side were, and were in their camp hop back to the Israelite side faster than a Sabah politician and start fighting against them as well. And the people who had run away and who were hiding in the caves, they too come out and pursue the Philistines who are fleeing in the battle. And so we read in verse 23 that the Lord saved Israel that day. Jonathan was right. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Saul had disobeyed God when his army was dwindling, but now we see that actually that shrinking of the army wouldn't have mattered. It was part of God's plan. God was going to use Jonathan, Saul's son, one man, and his armor bearer, to bring about the victory. And that would have brought glory to God and strengthened Saul's claim to a dynasty. All Saul had to do was to trust him and obey his word. But he panicked and disobeyed. Friends, when are we tempted to stop trusting God? When do we panic and say, I'll have to take this action, even though I know it's not what God wants, because I can't trust him to know what he's doing? Sometimes we might be tempted at work. We're asked to do something that we know God wouldn't be pleased with, something unethical perhaps. Uh, will we say no? And trust God that he will look after us, even if the boss gets really angry, or even if we are disadvantaged or snubbed or sacked for, for failing to be a team player? We may be tempted in our personal lives. Some Christians end up dating and marrying non-Christians when they know that's not what God wants them to do, because, well, I'm getting older, and what if I don't ever find anyone? Will we trust that God knows what is best for us, whether or not we are given a partner to marry? In churches, will we trust God and teach his word and hold fast to it in obedience, even the parts that are not popular with our culture? Or will we panic when we find our culture changing and we think we have to change our doctrine for the sake of attracting and keeping numbers? God rejected Saul because he didn't trust and obey him. Jonathan trusted God. He was the instrument of God's salvation. Is he the man after God's own heart? The one God has chosen? He looks like God's chosen one. He's acting like God's chosen one. But the problem is, he's Saul's son. And God has already said to Saul that his dynasty won't last. So, so how? 
Well, in God's ironic providence, it is Saul himself who makes the problem for Jonathan. Remember the Philistines are running away in panic? The Israelites are chasing them and hunting them. Uh, they keep retreating, uh, and so the battle keeps moving west. Uh, the Israelites are getting tired, but Saul wants them to finish the job, not stop for food. And so he lays an oath on them, saying in verse 24, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. Now, do you notice the subtlety of the wording here? Uh, God had saved his people through Jonathan, but now it's about Saul being avenged on his enemies. Maybe he's desperately trying to justify himself as a leader because of what Samuel said. Although the way he does it isn't really helpful for his people. The Israelites are faint and hungry, chasing the Philistines on empty stomachs. But here they come to a forest and they find honey in the ground. No one dares to eat it except Jonathan. Because Jonathan wasn't there to hear his father's oath. He was at the front line doing the brave and risky thing and he didn't get the memo. He eats, and he's feeling better for the nourishment. But then someone tells him about his father's curse. And Jonathan says in verse 29, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they had found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. He's right. Saul shouldn't have done that. But now Jonathan has eaten in violation of his father's vow and brought upon himself the curse of God's anointed king. Well, the Israelites keep pursuing and striking down the Philistines. Further and further west they go, and the people are now very faint. Presumably the sun is now set, they're released from Saul's oath, and they pounce on spoil and take sheep and ox and cattle and, and slaughter them on the ground and eat them with the blood, which is against God's law. They were only meant to eat meat with no blood, which at that time was meat that had been sacrificed to God and the blood drained away on the altar. So the report came to Saul in verse 33. Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with blood, and he is quick to reprimand them. You have dealt treacherously. He rightly says, they have chosen to disobey God. He disobeyed God when he panicked. They disobeyed God when they were hungry. What is it, my friend, that causes you to disobey God? Saul considered it more important to preserve his army than to keep God's word. They considered it more important to feed their faces than to keep God's word. Think about a sin that you might have committed. What was it that was more important to you at that point than to obey God's word? Did you disobey because you didn't trust God to keep his promises? Or did you disobey because you didn't even think about God? You just wanted to satisfy your own desires without reference to him. When you confess your sins, don't just confess your sin. Consider the sin behind the sin, and turn away from that as well. Saul tries to remedy the situation. He gets his men to roll a great stone to him. Uh, he says in verse 34, uh, let Disperse yourself among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat, and do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. 
So the stone becomes an altar to the Lord where they can legitimately slaughter the animals and eat. And so Saul stops the people from sinning and he built an altar to the Lord. Both good things for a king to do. But was the altar really to worship the Lord? Or was it there so that the hunger of the troops could be satisfied without them breaking the law? You see, instead of worship become primary and the feasting become an expression of the fellowship that comes out of that, this was really about the feasting and the worship simply a necessary preliminary to justify it. Verse 34 tells us that that was the, the first altar that Saul had built to the Lord. And that's telling, isn't it? He never built an altar to offer sacrifices to God until he needed it for butchering. There's nothing actually wrong with what he does. But there is something wrong with his heart. Uh, brothers and sisters, in the New Covenant, we no longer offer sacrifices to God on an altar. Animal sacrifices are gone. Christ was sacrificed once and for all for our sins on the cross. But we still worship God in, through, and with Jesus by giving our lives to him and seeking to serve him and obey him in all that we do. And there are actually many earthly benefits that, that flow out of that. Like the wonderful fellowship that we have with each other, our, our loving Christian community. Like having meaning and purpose in life, having a solid moral compass. But, but let me ask you, do we serve God because he is worthy to be served and worshipped and obeyed and then enjoy the benefits of the service with thanksgiving to him? Or are the benefits the primary thing? And we simply worship and serve God in order to get them. Let's make sure that we serve God from the heart as a response to the grace God has given us in Christ Jesus. And not just to get the benefits, as good as they may be. Well, it's night now. And Saul wants to press on with wiping out the Philistines while they have a chance. Everyone agrees except the priest who wants them to consult God. So Saul inquires of God in verse 37. He says, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But no answer. This means something is wrong. God is displeased. Someone has sinned. Uh, Saul calls his leaders and makes another vow in God's name. He says in verse 37, uh, uh, 38 rather, uh, Come here, all you leaders of the people, and know and see how the sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. Hmm. The leaders say nothing. So Saul says to Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the, on the other side. They agree. Saul prays. God has consulted using sacred stones, and the fault is found to be on the side of Jonathan and Saul. The lot is cast again, and the culprit is shown to be Jonathan. So Saul turns to Jonathan, tell me what you have done. And Jonathan makes no excuses. He says, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul makes a vow in verse 44. He says, God do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Jonathan is already under the curse of God's anointed king. And now Saul vows again in God's name that he will die. This is the end. He will not inherit the throne. 
But the people object. They say in verse 45, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. And then they make a counter oath, again using God's name. As the Lord lives, there shall not a hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. And so verse 45 says, The people ransomed Jonathan that he did not die. You see the problems here? Saul binds Israel with a silly oath that is accidentally broken by Jonathan. Then he makes another oath twice, which he has then forced to break himself because people make an oath to defend Jonathan, and God is invoked in all of them. So that in the end, Saul the oath-maker corners himself into being Saul the oath-breaker. He is happy to kill Jonathan for breaking the oath, but he can't keep his own. And by the end of the story, Saul, God's anointed king, has actually called down God's curse both on himself and his son. What a mess! No wonder the Lord warned us against making oaths. Friends, it didn't have to be this way. God saved his people through Saul in the previous chapter. He did this through Jonathan in this one. If Saul had humbly trusted God, it could have turned out so well. If he had waited for Samuel, he wouldn't have been rejected. If he had not been so egocentric, he and his people would have gladly joined Jonathan in wiping out Israel's enemies without all the problems caused by these rash, rash oaths. Jonathan would have been marked as a hero with his father, a man used by God to save his people in spite of all the odds, a worthy successor to the kingship to perpetuate Saul's dynasty. But now God has rejected Saul and his clan. A curse has come down on Saul and Jonathan from Saul's own mouth. There is a rift between Saul and Jonathan, between Saul and the people, and all this means that the rest of the Philistines get away. Saul, in verse 46, stops pursuing them, and they live to fight Israel another day. If only Saul was a better king. But you know, Saul was the way he was because he was a sinful human being. And if you and I look at ourselves hard enough, we will see ourselves in Saul. And that is terrifying. Saul is not the right king for God's people, but God chose him. I'm sure God didn't choose him just to set him up to fail by choosing someone unsuitable, as it were. He was probably the best that Israel had to offer at the time. But God's people needed a better king. A king who does not have the sinful heart. A king who really does trust God and obey him. God's people really need a better king. And in Jesus, we have one. Jesus never panicked and sinned. He always did the right thing. Unlike Saul, Jesus trusted his father and obeyed him even unto death. And God vindicated him. He gave him, like Jonathan, a supernatural victory by raising him from the dead. Through his death on the cross on our behalf, we have forgiveness of sins. And his victory over death means that we too will rise in glory. God has saved us. Not by many, but by one. And so, like Jonathan, Jesus became the saviour of God's people. So, brothers and sisters, let's look to Jesus and seek to be like him.
Every sinful human leader, no matter how good, will have something of Saul in their hearts. But not Jesus. Put not your hope in sinful man, but look to Jesus, your perfect King. Follow him like the armor bearer followed Jonathan. Say to him, do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. And seek to follow him by trusting and obeying the Father, no matter what. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is our perfect King. We thank you that you have saved us, your people, through his faithfulness and obedience. We pray that you help us to follow him, heart and soul, by trusting and obeying you. Change our hearts, we pray, by your Spirit, that we might become less and less like Saul, and more and more like Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen.